Welcome to Snap Sessions, an episodic podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as at interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name's Doug Nunn. I am joined by techmeister Marshall Brown and voiceover colossus Ken Krause, who will do their best to keep me in check, and by our artist of the show. Today, we talk to Liz Helenchild, a one-of-a-kind disc jockey, also known as Late Night Liz and Bessie May Mucho a woman who has been creatively spinning records since her days at the University of Texas back in the 1960s. Who said it? Pepe Le Pew or Donald Trump? Jennifer Finney Boylan, New York Times, February 6, 2018. Some journalists go beyond the call of duty, such as the case of Jennifer Finney Boylan, who reports on family life, parenting, and LGBT issues for the New York Times in preparation for an upcoming article on Valentine's Day and the President of the United States, Ms. Boylan watched all 17 Pepe Le Pew cartoons. Produced between 1945 and 62, Le Pew's oeuvre began with Odorable Kitty and ended 17 years later with L'Ouvre Come Back to Me. C'est ton grand oeuvre. But Miss Boylan was not trying to research French mammalian members of the Mephitidae family. No, rather she was looking for similarities in amorous style between Pepe Le Pew and the present occupant of the White House. And I can now share what I've learned about love, the French, narcissistic personality disorder, men, women, president of the United States, and the smell of Limburger cheese. Pepe Le Pew's cartoons always have basically the same plots. They start with a cat, whom Pepe invariably mistakes for a skunk, and chases inexorably until the end of the cartoon, always passionately in love, but invariably hidden from or rejected. As Boylan reminds us, Virtually his whole oeuvre is a series of jokes about males, who, no matter how clearly the point is made, cannot possibly comprehend the magnitude of their own disgustingness. Which reminds us of the Me Too era we are now in. Like Le Pew, Harvey Weinstein, and Matt Lauer, the president has been accused by multiple women of sexual harassment, groping, and refusing to accept no or no for an answer. Jennifer Finney Boylan then takes it all a step further and asks us to ascertain whether the speaker of the following remarks is Pepe Le Pew or Donald J. Trump. You know... I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. She thinks but by running away, she can make herself more attractive to me. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. How right she is. I'm like, smart. I am stupid, no? I took this test and barely passed. How about you? Just so you know, the answers are Trump, Le Pew, Trump, Le Pew, Trump. But it was kind of hard, you have to admit. I'm glad for journalists like Jennifer Finney Boylan and for this column. It may seem silly, but like a good cartoon, it teaches us something. Pepe Le Pew isn't even French. He's actually American, and his name is Henry. And then Ms. Boylan gives us a moral lesson. Pepe's entire persona, the French accent, the image of a carefree bachelor, his very name is a delusion. Just like Donald Trump and his failed university and his failed state company and his failed casinos, Pepe Le Pew is fake news. And now, here's our interview with Liz Helenchild, also known as Late Night Liz and Bessie Mae Mucho. All right, I'm here with Liz Helenchild, who is a longtime friend. She's also um, 
a DJ, sort of mythical DJ here in Mendocino County in Northern California. Liz comes from Texas. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about your Texas childhood. Well, Doug, speaking about Texas is one thing. Texas is the land of shit-kicking men and shit-eating women. And I was glad to leave. And I still think of it as a nice place to be from, as far from as possible, although I do get back there and have a wonderful time and enjoy visiting friends and family there. I don't even try and rescue them anymore. They are of the place. I'm from San Antonio, which was not a bad place to be. The San Antonio-Austin area was kind of an oasis in the wasteland that is was and is Texas. Texas is sort of a law and a nation unto itself. Did you actually go to college for a while in Texas? Yes, I went to the University of Texas. In Austin? Mm Mm-hmm, in Austin. And the main thing about that, because at the time I wasn't particularly scholarly or particularly focused, and it took me many years of being in and out of school to graduate because I changed majors a lot. Were you a literary type, or were you in the arts at that time? On and off. I, I kind of sampled many things mm-hmm. as a college student. As I recall, you did some drama or theater, didn't you? Mm-hmm. A little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, I did a little theater in high school in mm-hmm. San Antonio, and I did a little theater in Austin. And the pinnacle and the downfall of my acting in plays career was when I got the lead in Two for the Seesaw, oh, yeah. which is a really wonderful play. I was Gittle, the New York woman. Uh-huh. And in the middle of it all, I just totally forgot what I was going to say next. And that was sort of the end of it. It discouraged me, which doesn't mean that I haven't done other performances, but in terms of being in plays, that was about it. I went to Berkeley Mm -hmm. in January of 1970. I packed it all up and somehow made my getaway because every time I'd try and make a getaway from Texas, something would happen. I'd get a new boyfriend or something. Those boyfriends that get in the way. Yes, oh really. Something would happen. I would get distracted. And so I had planned and plotted and scrimped and saved and worked and got rid of stuff for several months. And I actually did reach escape velocity and pack up my Volkswagen bug with my sewing machine and my I Ching and a couple of other things, a couple, three other things, I think, and took off to Portland because a friend of mine who had lived in Austin and escaped to Portland said, take me to Portland in your car and I will help get you started there. So I did, but we got tired around Berkeley. We drove uh-huh. across the country in sort of record time and got weary around Berkeley and fell into to an enclave of people from Austin. Really? Austin and Austin Berkeley enclave? Oh, yes. Austin and Berkeley yeah. are very connected. There was sort of a, a groove worn mm-hmm. along I-10, I-90. I've often thought of the, well, I know Austin's a lot bigger than Berkeley, but I've thought of Austin as sort of like Berkeley-esque in Texas. Oh, very much, very much. And when I came to Berkeley, I thought, wow, like this is Austin to the third power. This is just like Austin, only it is just so much more expanded and psychedelic. I stayed in Berkeley for 
maybe a couple of years, wandered into Taxi Unlimited, which I think I've been trying to track the story down, but anybody who could really tell it is not in touch with me, mostly because they have left the planet. Yeah. People's Park happened a year and a half before I got there. So the story of the heroism of Taxi Unlimited and the heroes, the People's Park dust-up, cannot be told by me right now. I see. So you, you went to work for Taxis Unlimited, but it was ex-post Berkeley. Uh, yes, Park. it was. Mm-hmm. When I got to Berkeley, the people there assured me that everything now was anticlimactic. I really missed out. But, <laughs> but you still I, were... I, was, I, I was wowed. I thought it was wonderful. How does that link to the um, Helen Child name? Oh, the Helen Child. Okay. Well, Berkeley was a hotbed of the groundswell of feminism of the early 70s, yeah. maybe maybe the late 60s. Berkeley was sort of ground zero. Definitely, yeah. So I, I met people and I looked around and I talked to people and asked questions and connected and thought deep and hard about how I could shake off my past, which mm-hmm. not, not that it was so rotten, but I really saw that it would be good for me to identify myself not as a man's something. Mm-hmm. The best way to do that, the most efficient way to do that would be to not name myself after a man. My father's name ended in son. Oh, I see. Yeah. And so I thought, hmm, with a lot of in- cultural encouragement, I am nobody's son. People were naming themselves Marion Child and Susan Child, and I thought, hey, why not Helen Child? It does trip off the tongue. So I could blow away patriarchy and ethnicity at the same time. That's way cool. It's a wonderful name. Taxi Unlimited was a collective. Collectives were the big thing at that time and certainly in that place. How to run a business when where everybody gets input. It worked pretty well. Of course, there were people whose skills were not bookkeeping and there were people whose skills <laughs> were not mechanical. There were all those people in the middle, but it went on for many years. It was a bunch of overeducated freaks, mostly. And wonderfully opinionated, Wonderfully opinionated. Mm-hmm. A lot of arty <laughs> people that we were known for our wildly decorated cabs. So at a certain point, um, you're in Berkeley for a couple of years. And um, may I ask at this point how you ended up in Mendo? How I ended up in Mendo is I lived around the corner from another refugee from Texas, another Tex-patriot who lived in his Volkswagen bus on and off, came up here, came back and said, you must come see this place. You must must see the ocean. You must see Mendocino. And there's somebody, you really have to meet this woman who is a Libra with Moon and Scorpio like yourself. And I said, okay, so... Keep going, keep going. I was going to guess, but that's not Mm -hmm. fair. It's it's coming. Mm -hmm. At some point, I moved out of the Berkeley house that I was sharing with, I think, eight other people, taxi people, all of them taxi people. And I think there were about 24 dogs. Mm -hmm. At that time, I couldn't keep the dogs 
separate. I couldn't deal with the dog politics, and so I was kind of I became kind of persona non grata in that house. If you let the dog that's in heat out, woe be tied. So that didn't work out real well. By that time, I had traded in my Volkswagen Bug and gotten myself a 1958 Chevy panel truck. Wow. Fitted it out as a rolling home and moved into it. Parked outside the Taxi Unlimited office in Berkeley Mm -hmm. on the street. So I was free to roam. Gas was cheap. I had my job. I could go back to and leave from. I had some freedom to roam around, so I drove to Mendocino. What year was this now, Liz? This was in the early 70s, like 71, maybe 72. It's all sort of fallen into the mists of time. So I can't be real exact. But I knew where to find Antonia Lamb. Went into her house. Her kids were little. She was fixing dinner. I was standing there talking to her, and she said... Please hand me Eldridge. And I passed her the cleaver. <laughs> and we were friends. Really <laughs> good great. friends from then on. Now, she was from Texas, too, wasn't she, Antonio? She, she had spent some time in Houston. I think she was born in New York City. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And had spent some time in Houston. But she was she was kind of a city girl and a very sophisticated person. We became really good friends. I became her babysitter slash nanny for a while. So your first connection was to Antonia. Exactly. What were some of your first thoughts about Mendocino? I was completely overwhelmed by the beauty of it. And I was willing to do anything to be here and to stay here. So I parked my truck here and there. I worked at the UGG. I've heard about the UGG. That was an old each place, right? The Uncommon Good? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. It had been the Pie Wacket, but now when I was there, it was the Uncommon Good. I cleaned houses. I did all those things that just keep you in bread and roses. And you were meeting people. And, yes, uh, And yes. Um, what are some of the... And the boogies. Yes. Oh, the music Tell us scene. about the boogies, yes. Besides the beauty of the place, just the astounding beauty, there was a music scene where you could go out every night and for almost no money dance all night, hear incredible music all over the place. The Seagull Cellar Bar. Toad Hall, Toad I remember. Toad Hall, yes, Toad Hall. Oh, magnificent. And then I remember in Elk, too, the... Um, the, uh, the Greenwood Pier. The Greenwood Pier was a great place to go. Mm-hmm. And that, that place... Would, that would be later the in the 70s, probably, mm-hmm. yeah. So you came, you're, you're meeting people, you're, you're working at the UGG, you're booging as much as possible. And so at this point, there's no DJing going on yet. Well, I had started. Oh, de- yeah. I had started DJing when I was in Austin. I wasn't always in school when I was in Austin. I worked in department stores as a fashion illustrator and copywriter. It was just something I was able to do. So fashion illustration. Yes, huh? I so. did fashion illustration. Did you, had you done, you had mentioned that part of your thing when you were in college was various artistic courses. Was that one of the things mm-hmm. you did, was illustration? Uh-huh. Well, I didn't study art in college so much. When I went to New York to work at the 1964 World's Fair. I had to get out of Austin. I had to get out of 
Texas. And my choices were join the Peace Corps or work at the New York 1964 World's Fair, Mm -hmm. whichever was first. And I heard from the World's Fair first. So I worked at the Texas Pavilion and went to the Art Students League. Great. During the day, worked Mm -hmm. at night in the uniforms and costumes underground room of the Texas Pavilion. And you were doing illustration at that point and then? Yes, I was doing, I started doing illustration pretty early on. Mm-hmm. And then so there was also some DJing that was going on back in Austin. So you were actually working, was it a student radio station? I did. I started at the student radio station, which is KUT, which is fairly big and well thought of now. KUT-FM, Austin. It was a pretty modest thing at the time. Mm -hmm. I had a boyfriend Mm -hmm. who had a jazz show. Oh. Week weeknights, I think really Monday through Friday, weeknights from 9 to 11 or something like that, 10 to midnight. I'd go in and sit in with him, get acquainted with the jazz library. After a few months of that, he disappeared. Poof, he was gone. That's it. I went to the station manager and I said, yo, Bill, Larry's gone. And when that sunk in, I said, teach me the board and I'll do the show. Oh, great. So he taught me the board, and I did the show, and that was history. That that went on for a while, but the history of that was the biggies at the University of Texas. you got to remember, this is, this could be 1965 or something like that, four, mm-hmm. maybe even three. So this is no, a- 1963, like that. This is before the you The very went. paternalistic University of Texas got wind that there was a woman in the building by herself after hours in the radio TV building after hours and so they shut me down. Oh, so you got shut down in your first DJ. Yes, I did. I did. And when I went to Berkeley, I had no interest in doing anything that I had done. But when did you first start DJing at, I guess, KMFB? After that, it was it was in the mid late seventies, mid seventies. Yeah. Okay. Bill Brad, right. who was my neighbor. Right. Okay. You mentioned about his yeah, show. Yeah. Came okay. across the parking lot and said, "This is sort of almost like deja vu." Came across the parking lot and says, "My DJ has quit. Didn't you used to do radio in Texas?" Yes. Well, can you help me out here? So I went up and learned the board from the magnificent DJ Carl Tubman, who had a nighttime show. I remember Carl Tubman. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. So he retaught you the board and stuff. He taught me the board okay. at KMFB out in out in the pygmy forest. I remember that in the place. con in in the concrete block bunker out in the pygmy forest with all this tundra around and the big tower flashing on and on. I spent my entire many years working there waiting for the space aliens to home in on the tower, but they never came. Or at least if they did, they didn't come talk to me about it. I was going to put them on the air. Anyway, I, I started out with that show with Bill Brad. So that's the first show where you were late night lives. Yes. 
So you mentioned Carl Tubman. I remember Carl well when I was um, when I was a couple years into being here. And you say he was a big influence on you. Yes, he was easygoing. He had a very broad scope of music. He was completely unegoistic mm-hmm. on the radio. He he didn't talk a lot. I thought he was. I used him for a role model. He was one of my role models, as was Dusty Street on K-San. I, when I was living oh, yeah, in Berkeley, I'd listen yeah. to Dusty Street at night. She played mm-hmm. wonderful music and intelligent and fairly sparse patter. Mm-hmm. I just somehow don't have a whole lot of use for a lot of DJ Yakety Yak. I've never really enjoyed it, mm-hmm. and I hope never indulged in it. You know... I would say, this is something that I would say, um, my, you know, best memories of you then and when I listen to you now is um, there is some chit-chat here and there, but it's in a relaxed way, introducing songs or talking about the song that was just on or um, maybe making some teasing remarks. But you don't go on a lot and you certainly don't uh, machine gun people. You know, I think that that's, maybe that's kind of relaxed um, aspects of being a Texan that are good. Yes, and not having a whole lot of attention span. (laughs) Well, there you go. (laughs) Yeah, that might be part of it. So, anyway, what's, when Back then, what would you describe as a typical Liz show, a late night Liz show? Say you've gone, what did you go on at eight or nine? Eight, mm-hmm. and for a while I would go on till 2 a.m., and then mm-hmm. it would be till midnight. KMFB was unusual in the realm of commercial radio because it didn't really have to make money. When I, I was hired there, mm-hmm. it was owned by Steve Ryan, who is an heir to a Southern California air fat. Aircraft Fortune, Ryan Aircraft. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he was the scion of that. He had bought himself a radio station mostly to play his extensive jazz collection. He did have a jazz show. He invited a lot of really interesting players and their music collections in to be on the air. So it was a pretty expansive time. in terms of being able to play what you wanted to. Eventually, part of the deal was that you had to pay to play. You had to sell advertising to be on the air, and that's kind of how it stayed, and that's that's okay. That's life. Yeah. I know that he he probably had about, well, say, into the mid-'80s before he sold the station. Wasn't that it? Something like that? Yes, he sold the station in 1984, which ended my first stretch at KMFB. I think that particular thing, it had, in in some ways, um, the relaxed atmosphere of a public station. Exactly. It was was community radio. Before we had, quote-unquote, community radio, there was a call-in talk show every morning for years and years and years and years. Mm-hmm. One of my favorites when uh, you would have Antonia on. Yes. And now that would be, uh, Late Night Liz would have Antonia Lamb. And what was the name of her? Uh, Ask Antonia. Ask Antonia. She did a call-in astrology show yeah. for a half hour one half night hour. a week. Yeah. And that was excellent. It was lots of laughs, lots of teasing. And, you know, I was somebody who had probably come up 
as a doubting Thomas about astrology. But after listening to one of the evenings with you and Antonia, I would go, you know, there's a lot of sense there. And then it wouldn't be about sense. It would be about intuitive notions and so forth because you guys were so entertaining about it. You made believers out of doubting Thomases. <laughs> I'm not sure that was the intention. In yeah. me, I'm skeptical about absolutely everything. I believe everything. I believe nothing. But, but it know, was good entertainment, and a lot, a lot of people got to hear each other. Yeah. Everything that happened in the community was immediate and out there. Quite willing and happy to be there. That's the mission of community radio. It's immediate. It is connective. It is... It is the mission of radio to inform the community, yeah. I think, what's going on here and now, there and now, there yeah. and then. Yeah. Well, you had a second time when you came back to KMFB. You mentioned um, uh, in mid-90s, right? And yes. That, that yeah. was an ex- another 15 or 16 years. Mm, it absolutely was. So I what re- brought you back? I had I had been doing various things. I was driving for the MTA in Fort Bragg, driving Dialeride for the MTA in Fort Bragg. I was teaching English as a second language at CR. Ran into Bob Wolfell, who had been the afternoon guy. I remember Bob quite KMFB well. Yeah. In the parking lot of the boatyard, where both KMFB had an office and. Also, the MTA had a dispatching office. I ran into him, and he, he asked me if I was ready to come back to KMFB. And I said, oh, yes, what's the deal? And he said, what do you want? And I said, three nights a week in a kid's show. He said, go out and sell it. And I was back on the air until the day before Halloween. 2000-something, right? 2011. Right. Yeah, 2011. So from... 95 to 2011, I was back on the air doing nights. You asked me about how I put the show together. Right, please, yes. I had, and still do, have, I had a vast music library. KMFB, because it had been on the air for so long, had vinyl, had CDs, had some things in the computer, but we weren't all that digital in 1995. We were right. just kind of clamoring into that sort of mode. And there was, there was lots to choose from. I had my own collection, which had become massive after low those many years. Did you just leave it at the station then? I, yes, yes, I'd leave it yeah. at the mm-hmm. station. And sometimes people would give me stuff. Sometimes people would come in to play and be interviewed and leave their recordings. So at airtime, I would just put something on. I would put on a piece of music, listen to it while it was playing. That would suggest what the next tune would be, and that would go on until nighty night. Yeah. Closing time. It was just sort of free associating musically through the grooves, one after another, stringing it together like beads, patching it together like patchwork. Just one song, one piece of music would suggest the other. And not to get woo-woo about it, Doug, I think radio, in that sense, especially at night, when the radiation patterns change a little bit in the upper atmosphere, Mm -hmm. 
in the ionosphere. I think there's a, a two-way connection going on because I can't tell you how many times I put on a piece of music and it might have been something kind of out of left field and I thought this is weird but I'm going to go with it and someone would call in and say I was just about to request that or that reminded me of something. One night I was up there late and and the only thing to do would be to put on Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto. And I thought, whoa, that's a stretch, but I've got a really good recording of that. So I put it on and went and cleaned up because it's 40 minutes long and found out that a woman out in the hills had been rehearsing for her performance of that concerto. That version of that concerto had been the one she grew up on. So you never know. That's what I mean by the the two-way influence and connection. I found one time... Not to be woo-woo. Yeah, so there was a a huge amount of improvising in what you did over the course of an evening. Always. Mm -hmm. That's what keeps it fresh and real. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can't imagine formatting something if something has happened that merits a, a string of topical music. I'll do that. If it's Thanksgiving, I will play Thanksgiving music. Mm-hmm. But that's as programmed as I ever get. I'll follow a theme, but pre-programming is, well, I don't, I don't do homework mm-hmm. willingly. So at this point, the whole notion of uh, all this programmed radio and so forth is, would you you say that kind of drove you away from wanting to be a DJ in a regular way in in those particular ones? Do you have that kind of freedom at um, KZYX now? I do. I have that freedom at KZYX, and that's how I do do it. I admire the people who put together their show and and know what they're going to do next, time it down to the nanosecond, but... I would find that grinding. I just kind of go on intuition and listening and follow the vibe, follow the theme, and perhaps, who knows, get those suggestions from afar. So, poetry, yes. The, 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 there is a community, basically around poetry, and there still is. Gordon Black puts on the the spring poetry extravaganza every, I think, May, Mm -hmm. and people totter up to the mic, and new people who we've never heard from try stuff, and it is a community. Mm -hmm. It it gives us some continuity, gives us some history. And when I do my shows, a lot of times I will throw in poetry. Thanksgiving particularly seems to call for poetry. Mm-hmm. When I do, when I am lucky to have the Thanksgiving Thursday on my KZYX World Music Show, I generally read some poetry. I indulge in poetry. Okay, one more. Okay. It's kind of topical. This is from that same book. Oh, Yoko. Embedded in winter, no one to tell me if I am seed or stone. My incubus beside me, bones aglow. I take John Lennon's death between these covers, share a stripped-down grin with TV light. Blessed how no one is my night anchor. My total suck, my baby, my one, my other one, my sole body of love. So That's lovely. Yes. Oh, Yoko. Yeah. Yes. It all comes down to song. 
Yeah. It's all in there. It's all in song. And I have to tell you, Doug, that some of my favorite songwriters, let's not leave each other before I speak of my favorite songwriters and favorite poets, just a shout out for them. Yeah. There's Bob Dylan. Mm-hmm. There's Dave Carter. There's Joni Mitchell. There are many. They are legion, but those three. So we were just talking, you were reading some poems, and we were talking, and the last one you mentioned, the night of John Lennon's death, which was in December of 1980, I believe. And that kind of brings me to ask you about, I remember that particular night. I remember hearing the news when you were reading it off the teletype on your show on KMFB. And um, it, it sort of sort of illuminates for me the um, the politics of, you know, being there as a DJ, um, having lived through lots of things uh, together in these past years. And, you know, at your improvisational nature of your DJing, you've, you know, you've absorbed lots of events and you've gone into the studio and, and you know, been emotional in that way. And um, you mentioned a lot of the great songwriters you've worked with. They're all somewhat political people or Massively political at times. Bob Dylan at different times. Joni Mitchell at different times. Um, what are some of your political motivations or thoughts? Well, of, of course, Doug. I I have an agenda, mm-hmm. don't we all? Mm-hmm. And I'm, of course, aghast at what's happening. I just try and stay calm, stay level, back up enough, and see what's happening. Is what a spectacle! I have to. I have to kind of detach enough to see it as a spectacle in order to stay sane. And, of course, I want to influence people and turn minds in what I think is the right direction. But DJ opinion, opinion in general, polemics on the air, no, nah, I don't think that's appropriate. I think it's more strategically effective to play the songs, the songs. They tell it all. And so stacking them, stringing them in a certain way amplifies the message. So in a way, I use that pulpit in kind of a subversive way and let the artist tell it. The radio is just so almost intravenous that you can almost inject people with notions before they can argue with you. And in a way, that is one of the wonderful powers of being a selector and having the audience, having leave to put it on the air. It's a precious thing. And that's one of the many reasons I am so gung-ho about community radio. And let a thousand radio stations bloom, I say. I think it's wonderful. So, we forgot the naked lady story, Liz. you got to tell me that. Okay. Well, Doug, one of the things that I did when I came up here was, and I did this for many years, I modeled for art classes and photography workshops and, the, and such. Cut to the mid-90s. I am teaching English as a second language to new arrivals to this country. A lot of them are young men between, say, about... 18 and 25. I'm doing classes 
at CR. Bob Ross is teaching art at CR, and he is about to give a drawing workshop, a life drawing workshop. Well, at this point, I had not been doing nude modeling for quite a while. I had had several careers in between, and I wasn't as young as I used to be. But Barbara Ross calls me up and says, because Marshall Glazier, our teacher, has died recently. No, he didn't say because. He asked me to pose for his workshop. And I thought, well, our teacher, Marshall Glazier, has just left the planet. And I guess in honor of Marshall Glazier, we will do this. So... This probably, these sessions were probably a couple of times a week for a couple, three weeks, and I'm there reclining and being still and breathing in and out, and the terrible thought crosses my mind. These paintings and drawings of my naked body with very recognizable jewelry are going to hang in the halls of College of the Redwoods, where my male students from elsewhere who are learning beginning English are going to see their teacher arrayed and splayed out in this fashion. And what are we going to do with that? So I try not to panic. I try and keep breathing at the break. I lay this on Bob Ross and he says, you're going to have to tell the class. So I threw myself on the mercy of the class and the ones, the, the paintings and drawings that really resembled me were not mercifully hung in the hall of CR, and I felt that I've owed those art students an apology ever since, and I just thank them to the bottom of my heart, because it would have been impossible to keep the attention of my students where it needed to be for them to learn the English that they needed. <laughs> yes. In my class. English is a sexy language. Oh. <laughs> there you go. That's great, Liz. Yeah, I thought you'd like that story. Making China Great Again by Evan Osnos, The New Yorker, January 8th, 2018. A few weeks ago, John Oliver's show, Last Week Tonight, was back, and Oliver did his big rant on Donald Trump versus the world. In it, he talked about how Trump's America First rhetoric is going over across the world. Not so well in shithole countries like Haiti and those in Africa. One man from a shithole country pointed out that in the end, the same worms will eat Trump, too. In the January 8th issue of The New Yorker, Evan Osnos gives us his take on the Chinese view of Trump's America First foreign policy in an article called Making China Great Again. He opens by talking about a popular new Chinese action movie, Wolf Warrior II, where a Chinese hero takes a bigger role in fighting a Western-backed rebel army in Africa. His American opponents are yesterday's news. What's different? According to Osnos, the Chinese see Trump's foreign policy as a golden opportunity to push forward. China has never seen such a moment when its pursuit of a larger role in the world coincides with America's pursuit of a smaller one. Ever since the Second World War, the United States has advocated an international order based on a free press and judiciary, human rights, free trade, and protection of the environment. But now, under the banner of America First, President Trump is reducing U.S. commitments abroad. On his third day in office, he withdrew from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a 12-nation trade deal designed by the United States as a counterweight to a rising China. 
With Trump pushing the America First slogan, he is pulling back not only on trade agreements and on U.S. commitments to various allies, he is also giving opportunities to the Chinese. A few days after Trump's inauguration, Major General Jin Yanan, a strategist at China's National Defense University, celebrated America's pullout from the trade deal. We are quiet about it. We repeatedly state that Trump harms China. We want to keep it that way. In fact, he has given China a huge gift. That is the American withdrawal from TPP. As the U.S. retreats globally, China shows up. Do you get the idea that this wasn't very well thought through? Osnos is fairly straightforward in this regard. For years, China's leaders predicted that a time would come, perhaps midway through this century, when it could project its own values abroad. In the age of America first, that time has come far sooner than expected. We are now well out of step with the rest of the world on oh so many levels. Trump's short-sightedness is being seen as an opportunity by China, by Russia, and by savvier European politicians. They know a patsy when they see one. Trump has severed American commitments that he considers risky, costly, or politically unappealing. In his first week in office, he tried to ban travelers from seven Muslim-majority countries, arguing that they pose a terrorist threat. He announced his intention to withdraw the U.S. from the Paris Agreement on Climate Change and from UNESCO, and he abandoned United Nations talks on migration. He has said that he might renege on the Iran nuclear deal, a free trade agreement with South Korea, and NAFTA. His proposal for the 2018 budget would cut foreign assistance by 42%, or $11.5 billion, and it reduces American funding for development projects such as those financed by the World Bank. China is seizing the opportunities presented by the big orange doofus. He and his right-wing Republican friends may not understand, but the rest of the world, most especially the Chinese, most decidedly do. Days before the TPP withdrawal, President Xi Jinping spoke at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, a first for a paramount Chinese leader. Xi reiterated his support for the Paris climate deal and compared protectionism to locking oneself in a dark room. Locking oneself in a dark room sounds like something a spoiled brat would do. And a spoiled brat who 46% of the American electorate and its archaic electoral college election system have elected. It's hard to get Chinese leaders to openly express their opinions of American presidents, but Osnos writes of meetings with Chinese scholars, including a certain Yan Tong, dean of Tsinghua's Institute of Modern International Relations. The interview can be paraphrased in a few sentences. For Chinese leaders, Yan said, Trump is the biggest strategic opportunity. The United States will suffer. I asked Yan how long he thought the opportunity would last. As long as Trump stays in power, he replied. During Xi Jinping's first visit to Mar-a-Lago, the Chinese leader and his advisors were testing Trump's understanding of world affairs and his political acumen. Chinese officials noticed that on some of China's most sensitive issues, Trump did not know enough to push back. Trump is taking what Xi Jinping says at face value. On Tibet, Taiwan, North Korea, Daniel Russell, who was, until March, the Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs, told me that was a big lesson for them. Did not know enough to push back. Too stupid to rule. The Chinese also did a lot of prep work for Trump's first state visit to Beijing. 
Orange doofus seems susceptible to old-fashioned Chinese diplomacy, stuff right out of arch-typical Hollywood movies. Some of China's most effective techniques were best described in the 19th century, when a Manchu prince named Qiying recorded his preferred approach. Barbarians, Qiying noted, respond well to receptions and entertainment, after which they have had a feeling of appreciation. Solomon warned that modern Chinese leaders use the trappings of imperial China to impress foreign officials with their grandeur and seriousness of purpose. Solomon advised, resist the flattery of being an old friend or the sentimentality that Chinese hospitality readily evokes. An American with high-level contacts in Beijing told me that they plan to wow him with 5,000 years of Chinese history. They believe that he is uniquely susceptible to that. So basically, this America First stuff is music to Chinese ears, a fat pitch they can put over the left-field bleachers, a chance to sucker punch an imbecile. The big orange doofus is indeed as dumb as he looks, to quote the estimable Muhammad Ali. America first. It's pretty evident that Trump's short-sighted policies are making us look bad and weakening our future. The big orange doofus was a bad choice to run a country. If you don't read, if you already think you know everything, if you wear your ego on your sleeve, you're a poor choice to go up against people who have been playing geopolitics for 5,000 years. You're not a great deal maker. You're a mark waiting to be taken advantage of. I don't want an egotist as president and chief diplomat. I want somebody who has cracked a book and done some studying, not someone who is uniquely susceptible to stereotypical diplomatic maneuvers from a 5,000-year-old manual. Homo sapiens, the hard-ass species. A few nights ago, I was watching the new series, Civilizations, on PBS. It was quickly revealed to be a series celebrating our numerous successes as a species. I watched us progress from the cognitive revolution of 75,000 years ago, to the birth of art, to the growth of agriculture and civilization. As I joined the show in marveling at various creative accomplishments, I couldn't help beaming with pride at what a fabulous bunch of creatures we Homo sapiens really are. But last night, I heard a report on NPR's All Things Considered on a recent study in the journal Science by paleobiologist Felisa Smith from the University of New Mexico. By studying the fossil record going back 65 million years, Smith has discovered that mammals became highly successful after dinosaurs disappeared and soon got fairly big. Smith tells us, Among the giant creatures, llamas and camels and sloths and five species of pronghorn antelope, actually, she says, and certainly mammoths, and then lots of really cool predators like Arctotus, the short-faced bear. The short-faced bear stood 11 feet tall, about the shoulder height of some species of ancient camel. Sounds like a golden age for furry creatures, and it was, at least until Homo sapiens arrived. Taken as a whole over 65 million years, being large did not increase mammals' extinction risk, but it did when humans were involved, Smith found. Looking back over the most recent 125,000 years of fossil record, Smith found that when humans arrived someplace, the rate of extinction for big mammals rose. She says it basically came down to hunger. Certainly, humans exploit large games, she says, probably because they are tasty and because a bigger animal makes for a bigger meal. 
Great extinctions suddenly took place when Homo sapiens crossed the land bridge to North America and when they arrived in both Australia and New Zealand. There were many reasons for this, hunting in groups, increasingly sophisticated weapons, and... Humans did other things besides hunting that hastened the disappearance of big mammals. They burned forests and grasslands that big mammals used. They competed with the big carnivores for game. They brought dogs with them that made them better hunters. Since then, we've gone from one success to the next. Consider that back when Mr. Jesus H. Christ was a baby, the world population of Homo sapiens is guesstimated to have been around 200 million. By 1800, it is further estimated that we had probably reached one billion people. And when I was born back in 1952, the population of human beings was generally thought to have been about 2.5 billion. Now we stand at around 7.3 billion, which means that our population has almost tripled in just my 65 years on the planet. Compare estimates of populations of other animals. There are now estimated to be around 1.4 billion cows, between 1 and 2 billion pigs, and 19 billion chickens. That's right, 19 billion chickens. Of course, these animals we eat, so their numbers are advantaged compared to other beasts, and thus more populous. Our domestic buddies, dogs and cats, are both estimated to number around 600 million. So apparently, it was a smart move aligning with humans. But when you look at the numbers of wild beasts, it is hard to find comparable statistics. By combing Google for total numbers of crows, eagles, and alligators, I got the following. There are reckoned to be about 40 species of crows worldwide. The National Park Service tells us that there are approximately 9,800 eagle nests in the United States. And there may be up to 5 million alligators in the southern USA. So wild animals are hard to count, but mostly well below us in numbers. Granted, there may be at least 400 million pigeons, but how long before we start eating them? Only bugs and ants seem to be doing well. There are 7.3 billion humans on the planet today. If we take everyone over the age of 15, they weigh a combined total of about 332 billion kilograms. If we imagine there are 10,000 trillion ants in the world weighing an average of 4 milligrams, their total weight comes to just 40 billion kilograms. So yes, bugs, especially ants, are doing well, but we still easily outweigh them. My point, Homo sapiens is not only a highly successful species, but we are very messy and we are most definitely hard asses. If you were a badger happily living with your family in a den, or a goose in a small flock at a bucolic lake somewhere, and a suburban development starts plowing up land next to you, you're suddenly up Badger or Goose Creek without a paddle. Perhaps the next creative development in our success as a civilization can be to find a way to live in peace with our animal neighbors, big or small. As NPR reminds us in the piece on animal extinctions, we still have lots of furry little mammals on the planet, but the pattern is clear. 11,000 years ago, the average mass of a non-human mammal in North America was about 200 pounds. Now, it's about 15 pounds, and the researchers say they're getting even smaller. Nice. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. I want to thank Liz Helenchild for being today's guest artist. And I want to thank our tech meister, Marshall Downtown Brown, who makes it all sound better. And thanks to our voiceover talents, Christine Samus and all-around jack-of-all-trades, Ken Krause. Don't be an airhead. 
Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity. Foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again.